Remember this morning, let's turn back to 1 Samuel to the 21st chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then came David to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And David said unto Ahimelech, and is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it me. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Here in this chapter of 1 Samuel, we're going to find where David makes his first major misstep. Under the pressure of persecution, we can understand where a man or woman is going to make mistakes. And here is David now uh, abandoned by a friend, certainly by the king, he cannot go to his spouse, he cannot go to his father, his mother, or his brethren. Jonathan has sent him on his way in peace, but Jonathan went back to his home. And so now David is going to spend many years as a fugitive, hiding, uh, we find first here with Ahimelech, before that with Samuel. Then he is going to go down to Gath. From there he is going to go into the cave of Adullam. And then he's going to be sent by the Lord into the forest of Herod. And then we'll find over and over David is just constantly on the run. David is going to make some mistakes in his journey. There's going to be times that the Lord is going to providentially step in to prevent him from going too far. Uh, there's going to be times that the Lord allows him to follow his own devices. And that's been the case in my experience and I suspect yours as well where there were things that I would have done wrong had the Lord in his kind providence not stepped in. And then there's been times that the Lord has simply allowed me uh, to go on in my own desires and my own design. And of course, I always reap the consequences, and so will David. I think we can trace though, David's real problem back to the chapter before. I've mentioned a comment that David made to Jonathan a number of times, but I've tried to save... I think the heart of David in that comment till today's message. We find in the chapter before, if you'll recall, that David says to Jonathan that there is just a step between me and death. And while on the surface that is true, from God's perspective it was not true. Remember Saul said, as the Lord liveth, David shall not be slain. That was true, even though Saul would quickly backtrack on that oath that he made. But God did not backtrack on it. God was going to spare David alive. David's already been told he's going to be the king over Israel. So he, on a natural level, from a man's perspective, was in jeopardy. But from God's perspective, he never really was in jeopardy. It reminds me of the disciples in Luke chapter 8 when they're on the ship and the Lord Jesus is in the hinder part of the ship asleep. Luke's account tells us this, that as the waves being in the ship, it says they were in jeopardy. But I also find in John's account where John said to, or the Lord said to him, let us pass to the other side. 
Well, which was it? Are they under the promise of God that they were definitely getting to the other side, or were they in jeopardy? Both. From God's perspective, from Jesus' perspective, they were going to make it to the other side. From their viewpoint, they were in jeopardy. And that's the problem, is all too often we look at things from the human perspective instead of the divine. That's why the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he lets us know that we're troubled on every side, and he lets us know that we're in distress, uh, we have all these various problems, then he concludes this way, he says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal way to glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. He says, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. But the problem is, is with these eyes, I can only see temporal things. Uh, but the problem is, is all too often those are the eyes we look through instead of the eye of faith that God has given us and look at it from God's perspective. So David is looking at things from human perspective. And so David tells Jonathan, there's just a step between me and death. Well... In one hand, again, there was just a step between him and death. But on the other hand, by the providence of God, Saul was never going to be able to reach forth his hand against David. He made many attempts, and God always stood between. God acted as an intercessor and a mediator over and over at the wicked attempts of Saul against David. So here we come to uh, this chapter, chapter 21. He has been there with Samuel and Ramah. You'll recall, he comes to Samuel, and they began to prophesy. Saul finds out he's there. Saul sends three different sets of servants. And as every set arrives on the scene, God gives them all a spirit of worship, and they all begin to prophesy. To the point, finally, Saul goes himself, and when Saul arrives on the scene, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul, and Saul begins to prophesy. What did God do? God just gave him a good worship meeting, and that took care of Saul and his wicked plans. As we mentioned last week, a lot of times a lot of trouble can be dissolved among God's people when we just simply get together and worship. Uh, here in that moment, that was how God spared David, was simply by sending the spirit of worship there uh, to Saul and to his servants, and obviously to Samuel and to David, and those prophets gathered together. Now David is going to leave that place, and he comes, it says, to Nod, to Ahimelech the priest. But notice it says, Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David. He didn't understand why David was by himself. He says, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, He is going to lie. He says, The king hath commanded me a business and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. That's a lie. The king never sent... Uh, David on any kind of mission. Saul never appointed David any business here in this case. Now there's times in the past that David was appointed certain business. He was appointed a captain over thousands by Saul. He was appointed to go and slaughter a hundred Philistines to bring their foreskins back so that he could marry uh, Michal, the daughter of Saul. But in this case, Saul has not sent him on this journey. This is a journey that David has taken upon himself this is a journey where he is fleeing as a fugitive and a vagabond, but as he comes before Ahimelech, the priest of God, number one, it's good to go to the priest of God, but he should have been honest with the priest of God. He should have been forthright. Ahimelech was afraid, and apparently the fear of Ahimelech made David also afraid, and so David just simply says, well, uh, here's what's the deal. Uh, you know, uh, King Saul, he sent me on a mission, but it's so secretive, I can't tell anybody about it. I cannot uh, alert you to what it is. He says, now, therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread to my hand, or what is there present? And the priest answered David and said, there's no common bread. Here they are in the house of God in the tabernacle of that day. And as you know, there was a table for showbread. And once a week, there would be 12 loaves of showbread that would be brought in there hot and fresh. And the old uh, bread would be taken out, and the priest would be given that to eat. Now, as you go back in the Old Testament and find the commandment regarding the showbread, it was very clear that the priest had every right to eat that bread. That bread was for them. Now, there was no specific provision against somebody else eating of that bread, but it was clear that it was, its main intent was for the sustenance of God's priest. 
So we're not finding here where Ahimelech is breaking the law of God by giving this uh, bread to David. In fact, the Lord Jesus in the New Testament made clear that what was done here that day clearly did not break the law of God. Uh, The Lord Jesus did not condemn David nor the priest of that day for David taking the showbread. Now remember, the showbread was not on its first day. It wasn't there hot and fresh. This is the showbread they're going to remove out of the house of God and it's going to be eaten by the priest. Now, if it had been day four, five, or six, it would have been wrong uh, for anybody to eat of that bread, even the priests themselves. So, again, this is bread that's being taken out. I remember as a child many times my grandmother, who was very uh, frugal. Uh, of course, some people just say cheap today, but she was very economical, very frugal because she had to be. Uh, I remember a lot of times us going back in that time, we had in town what was called a day-old bakery. Now, I don't know if it was really a day old. I think it was more like four or five days old, some of that stuff we got. And, but she could always put that in the oven. Of course, it kind of freshened it back up. But she saved a, a few pennies or maybe a few dollars by going to the day-old bakery. So that's basically what's going on here is David, he just wants some of the uh, showbread that's uh, uh, now the leftover or what's uh, no longer being used there in the service of the house of God. But remember, David has lied to the high priest. He has lied to God's priest. Instead of just saying, uh, Saul is seeking my life and he's doing so unjustly. Uh, Saul wants to slay me simply because the Lord is with me and because I have behaved myself wisely. I have behaved myself wisely in all things and because of that Saul despises me and Saul fears me and Saul wants to put me to death. And I was just with Samuel, uh, the judge of Israel, the prophet of God. I was with him, and now I've come to you. Uh, He could have simply said that to Ahimelech, and hopefully that man of God uh, would have heard David in his confession of what is going on in his life. But instead of doing that, David senses the fear in Ahimelech and makes up this story, this lie, that King Saul has appointed him a certain business, and he's in a great rush, and because he's in a great rush, he doesn't have provisions uh, for his protection, thus he needs a sword and he doesn't have provision of food, thus he needs bread. And again, all this comes because David is lying uh, here before this man. As you've read the life of David from chapter 16 all the way up to chapter 20, you find that this man behaves himself wisely, but now he does not. And there's two verses in this chapter that let us know why it is that David is doing wrong. Verse 10, David arose and fled that day. Why? For fear of Saul. So David is acting out of fear. David is afraid. And when we become afraid, if we're not careful, then very quickly we will find ourselves in great trouble. Verse 12, it says he was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Twice in this chapter, the fear of David is mentioned. Now think about this for a minute. He's afraid of Saul, but Saul was nothing compared to Goliath. God was with David when David faced down the giant, was he not? Uh, What was it that David said, is there not a cause? Uh, David, he saw this warfare as a spiritual warfare. Uh, Here we find that that man defied the armies of Israel, but that's not how David saw it. He says this man defies not the army, but the armies of the living God. And so David says, I will take up the cause of God and truth, and I will fight for Israel, and God will fight our battles. And here we find that day he had great uh, valor, great courage, and that man took not a sword, but a scrip, and then he took his shepherd's bag, and he took those stones, and he took his sling, and David ran toward Goliath and let that uh, rock fly out of the sling, went sunk into the forehead of Goliath, and Goliath fell down, and we find that David took his own sword and slew him, took off his head. But now he's afraid of Saul. Here this man in his youth, about probably 17 years of age when he faces Goliath, is now a man in his 20s. And this man who should have been growing in grace, instead, what is he doing? He's growing in fear. And he's allowing his fear to control his decisions. And that's a very dangerous place for us to be. The Apostle Paul would tell Timothy, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. Uh, When you and I act or react out of fear, that tells me that we're not acting out of a spirit of power or of love or of a sound mind. 
uh, we have to be very careful when we are afraid. In fact, because of this experience, Psalm 56 is written. And one of my very favorite verses in all the Psalms, Psalm 56, verse 3 says this. David says this because some of this experience. He says, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. David got the lesson, but it's going to take some time. He says, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Now that's David's lesson after he's already gone through the fear and didn't trust the Lord. So here he is lying to God's priest. He's telling a priest, uh, Saul sent me on business. I can't tell you what it is. And we had to leave in haste. And so we don't have bread and we don't have a sword. So the priest gave him hallowed bread. And then we find verse 7. There was a certain man of the servants of Saul there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doag an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. So Doeg is here as a spy. says he was detained before the Lord. That doesn't necessarily mean the Lord detained him. And it doesn't mean that this man is here before the priest necessarily out of a contrite heart making confession. See, there were ceremonial confessions that people would have to make in that day, whether they meant it or not. And so I don't suspect that Doeg is there before the priest of God in an honorable, godly way. See, there were a lot of things that the law required of Jews in that time, and even those who were proselytes of other nations, that were simply outward show of religion. It was very easy in that day and time with all the rules and regulations on the ceremonial worship of God uh, that a person could outwardly uh, speak before God, and you might think that they're a godly, righteous person, but how many times did God in the Old Testament rebuke the children of Israel because they drew nigh to him with his lips, with their lips, but their hearts were far from him? I think that's the case with Doag here. Uh, Doag, if he truly loved the Lord and wanted to serve the Lord, he wouldn't have been a spy for Saul here in this place that day. But he's certainly going to be a spy for Saul this day. And we're going to find that great consequences come to Ahimelech and a priesthood because of the actions of David. Now, we're not going to see them unfold in this chapter. They're going to happen in the next chapter. But about 85 individuals will be slain by Saul, and only one will escape alive to come and tell David, and David will take care of him the rest of his days. But the consequences of David coming to this place and lying are going to be the death of over 80 individuals. And so never think that your sin only affects you. Uh, your sin will affect others. The Bible says that evil communications corrupt good manners. Uh, the fact of the matter is that when we sin, it does affect those around about us. Uh, I know that uh, many would like to believe, you know, this is my own business. This is my private life. It doesn't affect anybody else. Yes, it does. Uh, and Now, it will affect you. There's no doubt about that. But many times, it will affect others as well. So it says, David says to Ahimelech, Is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? See, here at Nob, Nob was a very protected place, naturally. So they didn't have a fortified city. They didn't need weaponry to defend the place. It was not a city that had suffered attack. It was a place that God protected. And so they weren't there with soldiers and armament. All they had there was the sword of Goliath. He says, notice, the priest says, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. He said, If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is none other save that here. David says, there is none like that. Give it me. I find that very interesting. When Saul gave him his armor, what did he say? He wanted it off because his eyes, I haven't proved it. But now, David in fear wants the very sword of the man that he slew using a stone instead of Saul's sword. He's wanting to take up the very piece of armor, the very piece of weaponry that he had defeated with a sling and a stone. You know what I'd like to know? Where was David's sling right now? Uh, if he is uh, going to still trust in God and use the weapon. Now, I understand that he's now more a skilled warrior. He's been a captain over thousands. He knows how to wield a sword now. But I suspect that a sling was still far more comfortable and far more natural to the hand of David than a sword was. But in this moment, acting out of fear, he wants a sword. And the only sword available to him is the sword of Goliath. He says, there's none like that. Give it me. And so we find that Ahimelech gives him that sword. And it says, David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. 
before we begin reading in that, turn to Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, we have a diary of David in this experience before Ahimelech. And it's interesting as you read the Psalms that are connected with a lot of these experiences of David, because in many occasions, what we see on the outward life of David is not the internal heart of David. See, all we can judge are the outward actions of men. We can judge their words. We can judge their actions. But it's very difficult to judge the heart. And sometimes the actions of an individual don't always line up with what their heart is. Now I realize the Lord Jesus says that uh, by their fruits ye shall know them. I understand there is a principle that when a person continues to act in bad behavior, that gives you a pretty good idea of what and who that person is. But when you take a small snapshot of a person's life and it is clear they're doing wrong, that does not mean that is a wicked individual. It could be an individual that in that moment has done just like you and I have always or often done. We have slipped in the moment and done wrong, but our heart is still sincere towards God. So Psalm 34, notice the title. A Psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And he says, they looked unto him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man, or this poor man, meaning David, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Then notice verse 7, he says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth him. O taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He says, what man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? He says, keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. He says, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth, the righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. And save as such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. So here David writes these words of praise, but also of trust. In a moment when on the outward... He's not trusting God. Here is David obviously acting out of fear. He's putting his trust in a sword. But at the end of this experience, you're going to find that David has certainly learned a lesson that the Lord sends his angels to encamp round about them that fear him. He also says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. David lives this by experience. And I certainly can testify my own self of how many times that I know that the Lord's angels have encamped round about me, and how many times in my life that I have faced various troubles. Many have been the afflictions of my life, but thus far the Lord has delivered me out of them all. Uh, there's not a single affliction that the Lord has not delivered me from, or that I know that he will yet deliver me from at least. There's a few physical afflictions that I'll probably carry with me until my dying breath, but that's okay because in the moment that I have my dying breath, the Lord will deliver me out of those afflictions as well. Well, anyway, here David, he's uh, uh, ch changing his behavior. He's lying now. But what, you think, well, what a horrible, uh, wretched individual to come before the priest of God and to lie. How, why is he doing this? Because once again, instead of fearing the Lord, he's fearing the circumstances and fearing this man. But David will learn from this. He says, I'm not going to fear what flesh can do to me. And as we go into the next chapter, which is where we started this series, you know, see that David lives up to that. See, the Lord is using him going to Samuel, him going to Ahimelech, and him going to Achish at Gath, really for David to learn 
that there's no confidence that he'll ever find in men, but that if he will trust in God, that he will be well. See, right now, David is going to Samuel, thinking Samuel will be my deliverer. Samuel won't be his deliverer. Well, if I can go to Ahimelech, if I can go to God's priest, he'll be my deliverer. He will not be. Well, maybe if I go to a foreign country, I can go to another nation. I'll find deliverance there. No. Well, I'll go to the cave, and the cave will be my deliverance. No. The Lord will always be our true deliverer. So we find that David, he takes this sword, and he fled, verse 10, that day for fear of Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, interesting where David goes, of all places. Do you know where Goliath was from? Goliath was from Gath. And so here he comes to Gath with what? The sword of Goliath. Don't you think the inhabitants of that city would remember that sword? I suspect they would. So here comes David into their city with the sword of their champion, which David himself destroyed, thinking he's going to find refuge there. I don't understand why David is thinking this. How in the world David could think that he could go to some foreign nation that God was not present in in the way of uh, manifesting his blessing. It's much like when uh, Naomi and her husband would leave Bethlehem Judah, the house of bread, and go over to Moab. And there they thought everything would be well by deserting the place where God had appointed them and going to a foreign place. That's not going to bless them at all. In fact, we find Naomi will lose her husband and her two sons. And she's going to come back saying, my name is no longer Naomi, which means pleasant. You call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord had dealt bitterly with me. Well, why did the Lord deal bitterly with her? Because her and her husband forsook the house of bread in a time of trouble. And there's been a lot of God's people that have forsaken the house of God, the house of bread, in days of trouble instead of sticking with it and uh, being faithful in the days of trouble and waiting for it to be the house of bread once again by experience. I'm thankful uh, to see God's people that are committed through thick and thin. I am thankful when I can uh, see individuals that I trust and believe that whether uh, the church is on a high or whether the church is in the valley, that they're going to be faithful to the house of God no matter what's going on. I thank God for folks like that. Uh, they are the salt of the earth, the pillars of the house of God, and thank God for them, but I also know that it takes the blessings of God to be such an individual. Well, we find that uh, Naomi and her husband, they didn't live up to that. But you know, when they come back, there's a man by the name of Boaz. The Bible says he was a mighty man of wealth. That always interests me. When there they were in a famine and in in basically in a financial depression. Here Boaz is blessed of the Lord to become a mighty, wealthy man. Well, how did that happen? Because he remained faithful to Bethlehem Judah, the house of bread. And the Lord honored his commitment. And so this man, Boaz, he's very wealthy. Naomi and her husband who fled because of drought and famine, she comes back empty saying, you call me uh, bitter because the Lord had dealt bitterly with me. Well, here is David now going to flee a foreign, to a foreign nation. And of all places to go, he goes to the city of the man that he slew that delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Remember what Goliath said, you just send one person out and if I defeat him, you'll be our servants. And I suspect had anybody else gone out there, they probably would have been killed and the Israelites would have been the slaves of the Philistines going forward. But what does God do? God uh, brings David on the scene and David is blessed of God and David defeats Goliath. But you know what? The Philistines don't live up to the oath. Uh, they weren't the servants of the children of Israel. They all fled and then continued to bother the children of Israel all throughout the reign of Saul. Well, anyway, here we find David, it says, he comes to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Now that's interesting, is it not? Saul's still on the throne. Saul's still the monarch in Israel. But the song or the words of Samuel have already been spoken enough that now even those who live in Achish, excuse me, live in Gath, and are there under King Achish, they have heard that David is the rightful king in Israel. 
So notice again, it says, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him and dance and say, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David knew the song that the women sang that uh, Saul took and twisted and warped to use in his jealous rage against David. And notice what it says. David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands <laughs> and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Um, <clears throat> throughout Bible times, obviously beards were far more common than maybe even today, even though beards are more common today than even a few years ago. Uh, but one thing about a beard, especially in that day, it was well kept and was to remain clean. One of the biggest disgraces to a man was to have an unkempt, unclean beard. And so for David to allow the spittle to come down upon his beard was a great dishonor to himself, but also to the Lord. And so he's changing his behavior. He's feigning himself mad, meaning insane. And to try to put on the show, he begins to scratch, to scrabble at the door and says, and also he let his uh, spit or his drool, I know it's not a pleasant picture, just fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, you see this man is mad? Wherefore, why then have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman? Uh, that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? It's almost like Achish is saying, I've got enough crazy people around me. I don't need another. Uh, I've got enough folks that uh, are causing me concern and trouble. Don't bring me more. And so we're going to find that David therefore departed thence. And that's when he goes to the cave of Agilom. So here is David. Again, he feigns himself mad or crazy or insane in the sight of this king. And it works. You say, well, he was deceptive there. Yes, he was. There's no doubt about it. He is putting on a show and he's being deceptive uh, to this king to uh, preserve his life. But notice Psalm 56. I've already quoted one verse from here, but let's read this psalm. It says, To the chief musician, it's a mictum, that means a poem of David, when the Philistines took him in Gath. This is speaking of the time when he has changed his behavior, speaking of the time when he is acting insane. And notice what he says. This is what David is feeling as that whole experience is going on. So again, when you look at the outward appearance of David, what would you say? He is a deceptive individual. Is that not what we would see on the surface of this experience here? He's a liar. He's deceiver. He's being deceptive. But notice here, Psalm 56, he says, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. Here I have found that Saul is against me, the servants of Saul against me, and now as I have come to Gath, which was a mistake to start with, now they also would oppress me, and they would swallow me up if they could. But notice what he says in verse 3, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Then he says, In God I will praise his word, in God have I put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words. That means they just twist up my words the way they want to. All their thoughts against me are for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. In other words, they're looking for everything that I do wrong. Have you ever felt that way? Have you in your life ever felt like somebody's just always watching me, just watching for a misstep, always just waiting till I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing? Well, I tell you what, there is one that's constantly doing that, and it's not the Lord. Uh, Re Revelation 12 tells us who he is. He's the accuser of our brethren. Uh, the accuser of our brethren is constantly watching us to see where we're going to slip up and do wrong in what we say or what we think or what we do. And he accuses us before God both day and night. It's kind of like there in the book of Job when uh, the sons of God came before the Lord. Who came along with them? Satan came also. And the Lord asked him, uh, whence come us, I says, from going to and fro throughout the whole earth. In other words, just searching out who I can destroy. And the Lord asked him, man, can he consider my servant Job? So, yeah, I've, I've looked at him. But he says, you've got a hedge about him. He's serving you because you've done all this for him. The Lord says, no, that's not why he's serving me. He serves me because he loves me. He says, you can take everything but his life. He says, and you'll see that he still serves me. 
You know, David would say this, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's what Satan found out about Job. Well, here in this case, we find David is seeing how they are resting his words. All their thoughts are against him. They're just looking for an opportunity. They mark his steps, and they wait for his soul. Just always watching. Again, Revelation 12 says, The accuser of our brethren accuses us before God both day and night. But here's a beautiful part of that verse. It says, Now is come salvation. And now is come the power of his Christ. He says, and the accuser of our bread of our bread is cast down. Now that verse, if you just read parts of it, is a very discouraging verse when it says the accuser of our bread accuses us before God both day and night until you realize that it says, now is come salvation. Now is come the power of his Christ and the accuser of our brethren is cast down. That means that he has no place before God to accuse us. God has not given him standing. Uh, you know, if you're going to go into especially the Supreme Court of our land, one of the things you have to have is a standing there, meaning do you have an official uh, reasonable complaint for that court to hear. If you don't have standing, they will not receive your case. Well, you know what this verse tells me? It tells me that Satan has no standing before God. So you know what he does? According to Romans chapter 8, he comes and tries to accuse you in your own conscience. He knows he can't uh, accuse you before God. Why? Because it's God that justifies. Did God not justify us in the death and resurrection of his son? He certainly did. So what can Satan do now? He can try to condemn us in our own minds or maybe in the minds of those that we love. So he says, they mark my steps when they wait for my soul, shall they escape by iniquity? And thine anger, he says, cast down the people, O God. Then notice this, he says, thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? In that day and time, there was a strange custom that when someone would die, they would go in the sepulcher, family members, and literally as they would cry, they would capture those tears in bottles and set them up in the sepulcher, the grave of that person, as a sign of their grief and a sign of their weeping. So David is grabbing that custom of that day and says, Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. What's he saying? Lord, take notice of my grief. Take notice of what's going on in my life. Take notice of the struggles and the heartaches and the fears that I have. Take notice of those who are trying to destroy me. Pay attention to what's happening in my life. And I believe that every tear that every child of God ever sheds, God takes notice of that. God understands. The Lord Jesus Christ as our intercessor, as the one who loves and cares for us so much that he came down from heaven to be suspended between heaven and earth on a cross for six hours, to be abused by wicked men... And to be slain and then to be buried in a grave that was borrowed. And then to be uh, raised from the dead three days and three nights later. He understands when it is that you weep. He understands your tears. Again, David said in Psalm 34. He says, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. And his ears are open, what, to their cries. And so he says to the Lord, I want you to tell my wanderings. Count them up. Pay attention to them. Put thou my tears into thy bottle, or they not in thy book. Keep a book of remembrance, if you would, of the trouble that David's gone through. Later in the Psalms, I can't remember the number right now. It's in the Songs of Degrees. Remember that psalm that says <clears throat> about all the troubles of David, that we're to remember them. He's asking the Lord, and as they sing that song, remember all the troubles of thy servant David. That's what David is here asking for. He says, when I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. I love that verse right there. He says, when I cry unto thee, then mine enemies shall turn back. Because this I know, for God is for me. That verse is so close to Romans chapter 8, where it says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Here David understood that truth long before the Apostle Paul ever put his pen down to paper. He says, for God is for me. 
He says, in God will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt thou not also deliver my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? So here David says, you've delivered my soul from death. You've already saved me alive over and over again. Now what does David ask for? Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling? What does that phrase mean? God, will you please order my steps? Help me in the way that I go. Help me in the way that I behave. Help me in the way that I think. And help me in the things that I say. Help me as I walk here before God in the light of the living. He says, I want to walk in such a way that brings honor to the Lord. I don't want to walk as I did there before the priest and Nob. I don't want to lie uh, and tell a man uh, something not true. I don't want to go to some foreign nation and have to act like a crazy and mad and insane man in order uh, to preserve my life. So God, I know you've delivered my soul from death. Will not thou uh, deliver my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? In other words, I want to walk an upright, honest life that honors God no matter where I am, no matter where I go. Uh, whatever I do, I want the help of God who's delivered my soul from death to also to keep my feet from falling. And that ought to be our daily prayer. Uh, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Uh, help me in the way that I walk so that I can walk before God in the light of the living. Keep my feet from falling. You've already saved my soul from death. Now, if you would, Lord, please, by your providential care and guidance, Guide my steps along life's journey so that the things that I speak and the things that I do will always redound to your name's honor and glory. Men are always going to try to mark my steps. Men are always going to try to trip me up and look where I've done wrong. But Lord, please, in thy mercy, when they try to do that, just bless me to watch my steps. Bless me to keep my feet from falling so that I can walk before God in the light of the living. <clears throat> so here on the surface, David, he's acting like a madman. He's feigning himself mad at their hands. He's scrabbling at the door, drooling on his beard. And Achish just says, we have enough folks like this. We don't need another. And in that, we find that David escapes out of the place where this probably would have been certain death were it not for the providence of God. And again, here's, where does he go? To Goliath's hometown, carrying what? Goliath's own sword. And they say, wait a minute, this is the king of Israel. This is the one that they sang, saw as slain as thousands, but this one is ten thousands. You know what I would have thought? You know what? This man is a great threat to us. Let's seize him now and take his life, which is exactly what David thought when he heard their words. And that's why he feigned himself the way that he did. He says, here, they're marking my steps. They're looking at everything that I say and marking everything that I do. And I need you, Lord. Uh, I need you that's delivered my soul from death to keep my feet from falling so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. So twice here in this chapter, David does wrong. Both times are motivated by fear. First, he lies to Ahimelech the priest, and then he goes to Gath. So he goes to the right place and lies, and then he goes from there, from the right place to the wrong place. And all of this motivated by fear. The Apostle Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 8 that God has not given us the spirit of fear, the spirit of bondage again to fear, but rather the, but rather the spirit of, of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So Paul says twice that God has not given us the spirit of fear. In 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. To the church at Rome, Paul says, God has not given us again the spirit of bondage to fear, he said, but rather God has given us the spirit of adoption. What does that mean, the spirit of adoption? The spirit of feeling that we belong to God. 
Now, you and I know that by the record of the Word of God, but isn't it a wonderful blessing when you can feel the spirit of adoption? What is the spirit of adoption? It just means that you are able to manifestly feel that you're part of the family of God. That's important. That's vital for the child of God not only to know, but also to be able to feel in our souls uh, that I can feel like I belong to God, that I'm part of His family, that I'm one that He cares for, that I'm one of those that God is for me and not against me, that I'm one of the ones that Christ died yea rather is risen again that I'm one of those that God loves and nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord it's important that you and I not respond and react in life due to fear because Satan is the one that's using that tool now, I realize you and I ought to stand in the fear of God and I trust that we do but we never ought to be afraid of men nor should we fear Satan. Now, there's, that doesn't mean we shouldn't respect what he's able to do. But I don't need to be afraid of him because the Bible tells me how to handle him. The Bible says I'm to resist him and he'll flee. The Bible says I'm just simply having done all to stand. And by standing there with the shield of faith, what do we do? We quench the fiery darts of Satan. So there's things you and I can do to stand against him that I don't need to be afraid of him. I can still respect his capabilities. The only one that I'm supposed to be afraid of, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, is him that's able to destroy both the body and the soul with the fires of hell. And that's none other than God himself. And all too often we get ourselves in great trouble because we react in fear instead of reacting in trust. And David says, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. I've told this story, I know, before, but... Back, this would have been around, I think, 2006, somewhere in that time frame. I was in a very, very, very dark place. And I didn't know why. I didn't know what the problem was. I didn't know, I didn't know the, the core reason, and thus I didn't know how to correct it. <clears throat> there was just a lot going on. And I remember going to a meeting. I wasn't even going to go. But at the last minute, I chose to go, and I believe it was through the leadership of the Spirit of God. And I'll never forget, Elder Kenneth Brantley stood up, and Psalm 56, verse 3 was his verse. I don't remember a thing that he said other than when he quoted that verse. He quoted what, he just started out, this is my verse, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. And immediately, immediately, it wasn't an hour after the sermon, it was immediate. That number one, I knew what the problem was. I had been afraid. And in my fear, I was not trusting in the Lord. And the dark clouds that had hovered me literally for weeks, instantly, just by hearing a verse of scripture, dissipated and went away. And that day where I came on in there just under the cloud of darkness and fear and concern and worry and not knowing which way to turn and what to do, I walked out of that sanctuary that day feeling like the, the clouds had parted, the sun was shining, there was clarity, that there was understanding. I wasn't afraid anymore. I had my trust back where it needed to be. In one verse, God told me exactly what it was, was the core problem in my life that I was fearing some circumstances that were transpiring, but I hadn't put my finger on that and so God did uh, did that day what he does for us often he just simply through the writing of his word showed me where I was falling short and it it gave me the knowledge I needed and it just turned everything around David had an experience like that as well twice fear guided him in this chapter and twice he does wrong and David quickly recognized fear got him in trouble says, here's what I've learned. When I'm afraid, I'm going to trust in the Lord. Doesn't mean that fear and trust can't go together, because according to that verse, they do. But he says, but what time I'm afraid, I'm going to be even more careful. I'm going to be more knowledgeable, more circumspect to fear the Lord instead of fearing the circumstances that are around me. I'm not going to fear the saws of my life. I'm not going to fear the achishes of my life. I'm going to fear the Lord. I'm going to trust him and know that ultimately he's the one in control. And I'm not going to fear what flesh can do to me. You know, he doesn't say there, because I fear the Lord, flesh can do nothing to me. That's not what David said. David doesn't say, well, because I fear the Lord and I'm trusting God, no man can do anything to me. That's not what he says. He says, I'm not going to be afraid 
of what flesh can do to me. Why? Because I'm going to fear the Lord. I'm going to trust him. And so if he allows flesh to afflict me, to torment me, to persecute me, and even to take my life, I'm not going to fear what they can do to me. Instead, I'm going to fear the Lord. And you know, there's a great calming uh, spirit that comes about us when we can get to that place. Say, you know what? Flesh can do a lot to me, but they can only go so far. They can only reach so much of who I am, and then they're done. They have a limit to their control, their authority, their reach. But I serve one who has no limit to his reach, to his control, and his authority. And so when I'm afraid, I'm not going to fear what flesh can do to me. Rather, I'm going to fear the Lord and trust that he will be with me. He'll guide me. And it may be that this will be what the Lord uses to take me out of this world and to take me to the world to come. And if that be what the Lord desires, you know, the Lord is right in all that he does. And so I'm just simply going to trust in him. And when we are as a child in simple trust and faith, it certainly relieves a whole lot of trouble and affliction in our lives. And so I just encourage you and encourage myself that don't react out of fear. Don't make decisions out of fear. Don't jump into situations in life because you're afraid. In those moments, that's when you really have to dig in and pray. As we heard last week from Brother Honey, uh, in the moments that <clears throat> we're concerned about the script, the purse, and the sword, we just have to dig in and watch and pray and trust the Lord to guide, trust the Lord to deliver, trust the Lord to give us counsel, and just trust that God is going to unfold before us the way we're supposed to go. It wasn't wrong, I don't think, for David to go to Ahimelech. It was wrong for him to lie. It was wrong for David to go to Achish. That was not his land. It wasn't where he belonged. And so you and I, we ought to come to the house of God. We come, ought to come as priests and kings to God. We shouldn't go to the foreign helps of this world. We're to come to the house of God to hear the word of God and come together in the spirit of God and worship God and trust that here in the Lord's house. We shouldn't have to lie. We shouldn't have to use deceit for why we're here. But we can just simply all come in together and say, you know what? We all confess that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We also trust that we're all saved by the sovereign free grace of God. And here we are assembled together as sinners before a God who saves sinners. Like the Apostle Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We don't have to come in deceptively. We all know we're sinners. Just come here to the house of God, confess it. Come into the house of God knowing that you are, knowing that I am. And let's just gather together and trust the Lord and praise the Lord and worship the Lord and not go to the foreign nations and the foreign helps of this world. And instead, put our confidence solely in him. Don't let fear guide your decisions. David does it twice here, and it's going to lead to some horrible consequences as we see in the next chapter. Just remember, sin will always have its consequences. But also remember this, the Lord Jesus Christ not only has overcome our sin, there's coming a day that we'll see the consequences of our sin also overcome. May God bless you, Zachary.